Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Rachel Jones, a GP, and today I'm talking with Julie Watson and Joey MacDonald about transgender health. Julie works as an educator and as programme lead for Silver Rainbow and has many years of experience working with LGBTI communities. Joey works as an educator and as a community liaison for mental health services at Auckland District Health Board, providing information and resources to staff and people accessing services. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Mm, thank you, Rachel. So let's begin our discussion with empowering our listeners with some terminology relating to gender identity. <laughs> okay, language and terms. Um... Yeah, feel free to jump in, Julie, if you want to at any point. I think we could probably talk for 20 minutes just about this topic, so I'll try and keep it really brief. Uh, we've already heard a, an acronym in there in Julie's bio, so LGBTI, that's quite a common acronym that you'll hear in this kind of space. That's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and intersex. Um, this will be really familiar for some people and it'll be really quite new for other people. All those different words um, relate to different aspects of a person. So we're kind of lumping together uh, categories of sex, which um, is about your anatomy and what you're assigned at birth. And then we've got, so that might relate to being male, female, being intersex. Uh, and then we've got sexuality, sexual orientation. People are a little bit more familiar with that kind of concept. Um, so lesbian, gay, bisexual was in that acronym. And then we've got the T, the transgender. Um, tea. And that usually is, is uh, confusing for people because they start thinking that being transgender is about your sexuality when it's more about your gender identity. So if we were going to talk about the layers involved in some terminology of this, I would say it's important to make a distinction between the sex that somebody is assigned at birth, which is a kind of bureaucratic medical process of what goes on your birth certificate, that's what's attached to your NHI number, um, that's distinct from how you might identify your gender. And those, those two things being separate is uh, a useful way of approaching this topic, I think, even though it, obviously humans are more complex than that and we tangle a lot of things together. And then sexuality is another layer. And uh, always when you start to define terms, you start to exclude people, you mm. start to um, have people say, this is not me. Um, what you often hear at the end of the LGBTI is Q+, which is, my, the Q might stand for genderqueer, people who are not identifying as either male or female. We also have a lot of terminology that is language specific, like every Pacific language has particular words like fafafini, whakalaiti, which um, denotes their particular position in society and their, and their own cultural societies. We also have people who go, for example, transgender. Um, that's not a word for me. I want to be called transsexual. Mm. I have been through all the processes of hormones, of gender reassignment surgery. I've done the hard yards. And I don't want somebody who is going without hormones, who hasn't had any surgery, to use the same terminology as me. Mm. So it's a, it's a fraught area and it's something that it's always best to ask the person in front of you how they would like to be referred to rather than assume you know 
the definition that you can apply and put in their notes and yeah definitely I think hopefully if you're holding a safe enough space for someone to offer you information about their life and about how they see themselves then you would always be reflecting back the exact words that that person uses and following that up in the notes or in your conversation um, that's a tricky thing about talking about language in this space is we could go down the track of saying this is what this word means here's a distinction between how some people might see transgender as a really umbrella term for a whole lot of different diversities and ways of doing gender versus transsexual which sometimes is interpreted as a kind of um, more specific set of people we could talk about non-binary gender that's something that i'm hearing more and more about um, and as a non-binary transgender person myself, that's something that I'm quite invested in, just the idea that people might not conform to our norms of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman and might identify as both or neither or somewhere in between or might have a more fluid sense of gender. But as Julie points out, the risk is if we start sitting here trying to say, well, here's this term and here's this term, then inevitably we will have left out a whole lot of people. Um, so. That's why I thought I could hang on that acronym and be like, oh, well, we can say what those ones mean. But there's a there's an almost limitless amount of different ways people might use language. And it's always going to be about reflecting back what that person is talking about right in front of you and trying not to translate that into what you consider more acceptable language, which does happen a lot with the word queer, for example, gender queer or queer as in sexuality. I think because that's a generational shift, you know, there are people... I'm in my 30s, people younger than me are quite used to that term being used in an empowering way and they see that as a really exciting, kind of got a political edge to it, but they haven't really known it as a derogatory term. Whereas people older than me often have had that kind of circulating as a, as a terrible insult, so they're not likely to be using that word themselves. But the, the trick is that you don't have to be guessing in advance and trying to apply a word, because hopefully if you're doing some other kind of signals, then that person will give you more specific information you can follow up on. A lot of the terms are reclaimed terms True. from, you know, even gay meant something different when I was a child, and it is now completely acceptable to just about everybody now. The whole acronym thing is sometimes used by people as a put down, oh, you know, LGBTIQ, XYZ, that whole alphabet soup thing, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky area itself. So we're really looking at definitions as gathering information to what that definition might mean to that individual rather than pigeonholing someone. And always being able to follow up, tell me about that, what does that mean for you? You can even say, I know that the, these words mean different things for different people. I'm quite interested to know about it from your experience. Mm. So do you have any stats on how many New Zealanders are gender non-conforming? There's another word, gender non-conforming. Um, so just a note on those kinds of terms as well. I think that uh, sometimes I hear gender non-conforming being used again as an umbrella term to include transgender, anyone who's gender diverse. And sometimes I hear it used to say some people who are gender non-conforming are not transgender and don't wish to transition. So um, someone who might be quite comfortable being a girl but she really identifies as a tomboy or is quite butch and she might be considered gender non-conforming. And there's quite a tension at the moment, um, particularly in transgender youth health or transgender children health, um, where people are trying to make some pretty harsh distinctions between who's really transgender and who's just a gender non-conforming person, which personally I think is a horrifying um, kind of battle over young people's bodies, which would be better if we just said, okay, a young person is however they identify themselves to be. So in general, I would say gender diverse more than 
a word like gender non-conforming because that can denote a much smaller category of people. It sounds to quite willful too, doesn't it? I like? will not conform. I will not conform. And, and if you're an intersex person, that's not a choice you've made. Well, I don't believe it's a choice for anyone, but it's certainly not a choice that's been made. It's um, how the, the genetics stacked up at your birth. So, yeah. So, I, yeah, I guess I would just like to note that you could be a transgender person and be gender non-conforming, or you could be a gender non-conforming person and not be transgender, and that's a fairly fraught area at the moment. But you were asking about stats rather than about language, um, and the short answer to that is that we don't have very many population statistics for transgender, gender diverse people. We don't collect information in the census. Um, we don't... Despite many many requests to statistics new zealand please mm. yeah many conversations with statistics new zealand where we have tried to say ideally you would not count people as male female or transgender because as we've talked about not all transgender people will identify themselves as a third category of transgender some transgender people will identify as male or female so you're missing the, the accurate statistics on that point um, but so far we don't have those kinds of population stats. The closest that we have is um, a Youth 2000 survey. That's a national youth survey. Um, and I can send through the, uh, there's a really fantastic fact sheet that mm. it would be helpful for everyone to see. Um, and the statistics that they got out of that was that approximately four out of every 100 students reported that they were either transgender, as in they ticked the box that was defined as being transgender where they had a little disclaimer of what that meant, um, or they ticked the box saying they either weren't sure what the question meant or they weren't sure what their gender was. So that's 1.2% within that were very, very certain and were saying, yep, I already know this, I'm in high school, I would use the word transgender or a related term for myself. 1.2% um, and then we've got a further 2.5% young people saying I'm not sure yet you know maybe maybe not or maybe I just didn't understand the question. Often I hear quite conservative estimates um, about transgender people people saying oh you may be 1% of the population or 1 point something percent of the population uh, that seems too conservative from my perspective I think there's a lot more of us than that. Because I work at the other end of the spectrum a lot in aged care I tend to use 1.2 of the over 80 population. Um, we haven't touched on intersex. Mm. Again, because it's, um, it's such a hidden topic, it's not discussed, there's no statistics collected on it. We are currently sort of thinking at about 2%, mm. but we think we're really, really understating that because there can be that overlap between intersex communities and trans communities, obviously. So some people who are intersex also identify as transgender, so that's quite a relevant um, yeah. consideration. Usually because at birth they were assigned a gender and it didn't, wasn't congruent. coherent, congruent for who they were, so they were forced to transition when they had agency. So am I right to assume that transgender individuals and communities experience concerning health and well-being disparities both within New Zealand and globally? Yes. Short answer, yes. <laughs> so here's where stats or collection of stats would be really so helpful. helpful. Mm. Mm. It's especially helpful in the allocation of health services, right? If you don't know how big a population is and you don't know how big their needs are, then you can't allocate health funding or services for them. So we're immediately at a loss. Um, we can try and upskill a whole lot of 
general mainstream health services, which is great. That's something that Julie and I are both really invested in. Um, but without clear numbers, it's really hard to convince anyone that you really exist and that you really do have relevant health needs, whether that's about transitioning or whether that's about just your general health, like a transgender and sex person might break their leg, same as anyone else, or have toothache or whatever. So, mm. Lots of toothache because of the gnashing of the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> all that stress, <laughs> gritting your teeth all but the if time. You, but if you go to the other end of the spectrum, into the aged care world, um, you know, nobody is convinced of those statistics because everybody goes back into the closet. Well, not everybody, of course, but I certainly know that there isn't the percentage of LGBTIQ people represented in aged care that I know must be present. Mm. Mm. So the only inference I can make is that some of them uh, have gone back into the closet. Mm. And some people have clearly said that about their own experience. Yeah. They have said, yeah, it's not safe. And if it's not safe, then I have to, I may have been living my life this way for 40 years, but when I go into an aged care uh, facility, if it's not safe, then I'm gonna have to pretend I didn't do that for 40 years, yeah. which as you can imagine is terrible for people's health. Mm. I'm interested to clarify what you mean by not being safe. Mm. Do you want to speak oh, to that, Julie, yeah. about rest homes or aged care? Um, we know that a lot of people who had transitioned but maybe not had full lower surgery um, get um, forced into clothing of the, the, their birth gender. We um, know that people encounter a lot of discrimination from other residents about being gay and lesbian, uh, get ostracised, gossiped about, a sort of open hostility about people like that. Um, we know that some of the people who run facilities see particularly gay men equate it with pedophile um, or, or sex predator and a worry about the safety of the other residents. Yeah. It, is, it is so much about uh, homophobic and transphobic norms in the society that people have lived in most of their life and that's older generations in a really overt way perhaps have been have been around that kind of homophobic yeah. language and, and assumptions and transphobic language and assumptions but it is also that staff are not equipped with enough educational support to be able to challenge any of that and so you develop it within uh, a facility just particular social norms that are really unfriendly to anyone who is different mm. um, and particularly yeah. if you don't have enough if you're not considered the expert on your own experience, which of course is so relevant to my work in mental health and is particularly also relevant to someone in an aged care facility, if they're kind of, their perception of themselves is being disregarded, like if someone says, well actually I really want to wear a skirt and not pants and people are just laughing that off and saying, you don't know what you want, mm -hmm. you're too old to know what you want, or that's not acceptable here, or that's some kind of fetish, we don't do that here. There's a lot of misinformation and a lot of misguided attempts to support people but to support them in a way that is comfortable only for the other other residents or the staff not for that person and when you talk about the staff a lot of um, the staff come from far away and they've come from political social re religious regimes that it's you know it's a it's um, a death offense to be gay or transgender um, yeah, it, 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 they have been brought up with this to be a very bad crime and a very big thing against their religion and that they have to do a lot of mental shifting to come to love and accept the people that they're caring for.
mm. coming from that place. Well, you know, and, and you're not being paid very much and you're not being given very many professional development opportunities. So how likely is it that you can shift some really deep held, you know, f understandings about how the world is? It's, mm. it's a different kettle of fish. Like. So this leads nicely into my next question. Are there any myths or stereotypes about transgender people that you would like to take the opportunity to dispel? Wow, where do you start? <laughs> um, transgender people are not all drag queens. Um, they're certainly as discerning about who they want to be in a loving lustful relationship as any other person in our society that um, it's not a lifestyle choice it's something that right from a very early age and we've got children presenting at four and five now as being really sure that they're not in the body that's congruent with who they are inside mm -hmm. that it's not a lifestyle choice it's, it's something that you're born into and you have to manage as best you can and with what resources that you have. I think there's a narrative of the tragic trans person uh, as either the butt of all the jokes, which happens a lot in movies, or as a violent person, either violent towards themselves, self-harming, or violent towards others, um, particularly as an association with sexual violence, which um, is pretty horrifyingly sad. Um, so the stereotype about the tragic transgender person, I think, really permeates how health professionals respond to, if, if a health professional expects you to be miserable because being transgender must be just so awful, because maybe they've read some statistics about, you know, we have terrible mental health challenges and uh, if people can't distinguish between living in a hostile environment is stressful and the kind of minority stress that people quite often feel, like the gnashing of teeth, my, my high dental bills because I'm gritting my teeth all the time at the horrifying cis-normative transphobic things that people say to me. Um, if people can't distinguish between that external stress, which is being in hostile world is stressful for me, and instead they think, oh, it's because you're transgender that you're miserable. And it's like, no, I, I'm so happy and grateful and glad to be myself and that part of myself is being trans and being non-binary and not fitting into how people expect me to fit. That feels like an empowering and wonderful thing in terms of my own self. It doesn't feel empowering and great when I go into an environment that I don't make sense in and where other people want to try and, you know, punitively respond to their own confusion. So they project their confusion onto me and say, I must be so confused. So that's one of the big myths that trans yeah. people or genderqueer people mm. or non-binary people are confused. They're really certain. They've done <laughs> a lot of thinking about it. They've done a lot of research, a lot of reading. Yeah, they, the internet. The internet is so helpful. A lot of creative process has gone into it. They're not confused. It's the people who want to put someone in a pigeonhole and want to be able to read everything. They're confused, so they project their confusion onto the person. Well, I guess someone's individual angst or anxiety at a certain point in their life might be like everyone else because mm. they're moving house. Because mm. yes. totally. something's not going right That's at right. work. Mm. Yeah. Of course there are circumstances yeah. in which we feel anxious or depressed yeah. or worried or sad or, you know, we live in the same world that everyone else lives in where there are very stressful things that happen. Mm -hmm. My rent is going up and up and up. It's very stressful. <laughs> I, I run a group called Drumbeat, which is for 
the parents and caregivers of gender questioning young people and those parents are so full of worry that their children aren't going to be successful adults that um, yeah, they're, they're going to be a miserable, miserable, lonely, self-hating person who never succeeds in life. That's a stereotype. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard for a young trans person or a young person whose gender doesn't fit to, to educate all the people around them to be like, no, no, it doesn't have to be like that. You know, I've got role models, I've got support, I've got people around. And there's quite a difference between the people who feel savvy on online forums and peer, peer kind of groups online or on Facebook or whatever and the people who don't. And there's some, so many tremendously successful transgender people, mm -hmm. you know, real stars in the art world, the theatre world, the writing world, the mm -hmm. academic world, the science business world, world the science <laughs> anywhere world. really. Yeah. In any avenue that you explore, there will be some really successful trans people. Some of them might be stealth though, they might be just living their life and you don't actually know mm. That they're transgender. True, that's another stereotype that you will always be able to tell by looking at someone if somebody is transgender or cisgender. Um, not that everybody is necessarily one of those two categories, but generally cisgender is a word, C-I-S, um, is a word that means that your assigned sex is congruent with your gender identity. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of, instead of saying normal women and transgender women, you would say cisgender women and transgender women. It's quite useful on a systemic kind of level. Um, and so the assumption is that you'll be able to tell if someone is transgender because they won't look like a normal person, like a cisgender person, but actually that's completely untrue. Mm -hmm. Everyone will have met lots of trans people and they will have had no idea because that trans person happened to look like whatever they felt comfortable looking like, which happened to fit into the gendered expectations of the person looking at them. So do you think the whole concept of transgender has been over-medicalised? Short answer, yes, but I would say the concept of transgender, or at least the, the languaging of the word transgender, has partly emerged in response to the over-medicalising of people using things like the DSM, so DSM-4 having gender identity disorder, DSM-5 having gender dysphoria, um, those are over-medicalising transgender people. I think often the word transgender is used in a way that's trying to push against that a little bit and say this is about our self-determination and how we regard ourselves and we don't have to fit into a medical model criteria for really being who we say we are. But yep, I think that's a huge, um, a huge tension and for any, any health professional who's wanting to work with and alongside and support a transgender person who's accessing a health service because um, of course we might also be colleagues, we might not be people accessing health care, but certainly in that position of accessing a service, um, it's helpful if you know that we might have had some really negative experiences, either individually with other health professionals or just with the system as a whole, with the expectation that we will conform to certain very binary, very white, very Western, very Pakia understandings of gender, which don't work for, I would argue, most gender diverse people in New Zealand. However, having said that, there are some medical things that would be greatly helpful to trans people, um, like the fact that the New Zealand government only funds four 
gender assignment surgeries per year and I believe if you want to go on the list now you have to wait 67 years till your name comes up. Yeah, so obviously that's completely unviable but access to health services, access to health technologies like surgeries or hormones which some people want and some people don't want obviously, it's a flexible transition process for everybody, that kind of access needs to be provided without overly medicalizing somebody's identity and experience. So it is access to medical support that people want um, and to do that in an informed consent kind of way that the way that you do for a lot of medication and a lot of surgeries where you make sure that someone understands the risks and has realistic expectations and all of that people definitely want access to safe and competent care they don't necessarily want although maybe some people wouldn't object the way I would object but Certainly a lot of people don't want to be pathologized as part of that process mm. or to be expected to conform to what that health professional personally believes is the right way of doing gender. Which has been so traumatic for so many people over so many years. This whole gender policing, this is what it means to be a woman, this is what it means to be a man, which is the whole thing that people are railing against anyway, you know. We're mm. not binary, We're, there's positions for people all along the spectrum. Yeah, I'm really opposed to the, the process that used to happen a lot and now only happens in pockets of New Zealand, but we don't have very consistent clinical practice in this area or, or kind of health provision. Um, and I'm really opposed to this real life experience or real life test, which can be interpreted in a less punitive way, but in its most punitive form, it means that when somebody shows up and presents to their doctor, perhaps a GP or perhaps a GP refers them to an endocrinologist, a hormone specialist, at whatever point that health professional can say, okay, so you say you're transgender and you say you want to transition, but in order to prove that to me, I'm going to need you to live in the gender that you say that you are and wear those clothes and do that, do whatever it is that I personally as a health professional consider doing that gender correctly under my, you know, I get to sign off whether you've done that correctly or not. For three months, two years, that's a really mm, horribly large figure, but you know, so it can be as small as three months, but it can be as big as two years. And then I might say, okay, you really are, and I will give you access to hormones, or I will give you access to writing a referral for a surgical pathway, or, and that kind of response, which is fundamentally assuming that transgender people don't know what they're talking about, that we're all confused, it goes back to those stereotypes, that we don't know what we're asking for, or that we couldn't possibly consent to a process because we don't understand what the process is, um, is so misinformed and so harmful. And that has been happening for decades in New Zealand, and it still happens in parts of New Zealand. So. And under the criteria, I probably wouldn't qualify to be able to Well, you're wearing pants, Julie. Yeah, and I mean, some of my hobbies. And short hair. Yeah. You'd be in deep trouble. No, makeup. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, that's such a ridiculous idea that you have to conform to. Not only is it terribly unsafe, especially for trans women and trans feminine people who would experience a whole lot of misogyny and trans misogyny in that situation, um, it's also just bizarrely 1950s, mm. you know? It's like, a, it's like a leap back in time, but I think that's what happens if you're a health professional who doesn't feel supported. If you don't feel equipped to be able to do what this person is asking you to do, then you get very worried and very risk averse and you start falling back on something that you probably Googled and found somewhere um, in an old document. Mm. You know, it, it does happen mm. and it's really dangerous. There's that whole aspect of the medical profession in terms of consultations with people trying to move away from that whole paternalistic 
imbalanced or unbalanced approach but um, obviously in certain areas there's still a lot of work to be done so I think that will be a really interesting insight for a lot of my colleagues. Trans people are so well informed because they've had to educate everybody you know they educate the people they come out to the health professionals if they're at school they have to educate their teachers the management team the guidance team yeah they know what they're talking about. Mm, I often encourage people, especially working in mental health services, but I encourage people who are trying to support transgender people to have conversations that are about, is this person expressing distress and stress about the amount of education that they're having to do to everyone around them to get some allies and to get some family support and to get some friends on board or some colleagues? You know, is it that kind of navigating the systems that they're living in that is stressful, which is understandable, we can all relate to that stress. Um, or is it actually an internal stress that's more about I don't know who I am and I don't know where I'm going and you know I'm trying to figure myself out because a vast majority of people who are not transgender are assuming it's the latter they're assuming it's a deep personal confusion that that person is feeling and well sure that's possible some people do you some people won't have done all the research some people will just show up because they've had this question and the doctor was the first person they wanted to talk to or the school nurse but a lot of us will have done the research and a lot of us it is about that kind of environment navigation and that's stressful and there are things that people can do to support their environments around that young person or around that person to be more friendly. And this next question does have a medical slant to it. Are there any specific health issues and we can look physically and psychologically that transgender people face? And I'm interested at the various stages of life. Um, Julie, you work with rest homes quite a lot. And Joey, you work with young people accessing mental health. So you work with people of all ages. And I think you'll be able to provide us with some good insights across the board here. I think it's always quite hard when a trans man has to go and have a smear test or a, um, a mammogram if they still have breasts. And the sensitivity around that should just be enormous. Same for a trans woman who has to have um, prostate testing Mm. and things like that. There's a lot of health services that it would be helpful to not gender so much, but to be more about are you a person with a cervix or are you a person with a prostate? Yeah. As people age, well, so much happens as you age, you know, so many health issues start to present. But again, I think it's mostly around that, assuming the gendering, assuming that the terminology that the person uses is the medical or gendered terminology that would be used by everybody. Just some like really big sensitivities around that. It's the mental health things that um, that are really huge, and particularly if you go into aged care and you start to overlay dementia or or just the confusion that an older person starts to experience and um, we're, but we're also encountering this is sort of tangential some people who have got to aged care and gone if I don't do it now I'm never going to do it I've somehow reached the stage in my life and, um, and, and are beginning the transition process in aged care so that's presenting some unique but I think I think some staff have really got behind it in an excellent way but some unique challenges in aged care. 
I think I mentioned earlier that transgender people would have the same kind of general health concerns of anyone else, like I might get a sinus infection or, um, you know, the toothache, the recurring issue. <laughs> but obviously, and we've touched on this as well, the idea that some people um, really deeply feel that their health will be improved by access to surgeries and that's a range of different surgeries people might want whether it's chest surgery to get you know, breast augmentation surgery for a trans woman or chest restructure, restructure what do we call that? mastectomy and mm. chest restructuring top surgery for trans Especially men. because binding is like restricting and yeah, restricting your breathing for a long time hot so there's lots of different kinds of surgeries, but sometimes it will be a lower surgery that people are looking for, which we often call sex reassignment surgery or gender reassignment surgery, um, as opposed to saying gender affirming surgeries, which often are the top surgeries or the um, shaving of the Adam's apple or the facial stuff. But access to competent care is definitely something that people want. Uh, but th for me, what I see the most is people wanting mental health support, you know, people wanting, especially the young people I'm working with, someone that they can check in with about the stresses that they're feeling. Um, and that's something that our mental health services struggle to provide because we're overwhelmed, we're understaffed. Um, it's not really set up to be an ongoing counselling arrangement. So often um, I'm supporting someone to get on the disability allowance or find some kind of funding themselves to go and find a counsellor who might be at Youthline or Rainbow Youth or you know somewhere accessing some kind of support that's not actually from the DHB at all. Health concerns, yeah. I think from my perspective it's just so much about that minority stress, mm -hmm. living in hostile environments, that kind of anxiety that people can feel and the isolation that that can breed, right? If you have told your family and they haven't been supportive or caring or you are trying to recreate a family with chosen family and it's hard and trying to find a job is hard if your documents don't match up. Trying to find a friendly GP can also be a challenge because that kind of information isn't listed. You know, we really need that information to be available for people. And some GPs have the reputation of being friendly and they get so inundated they have to say, we can take no more. Sure, so let's take a closer look at that. Um, and again, I'm sure my colleagues will be interested in this. How do we make our general practices trans-friendly? Oh, where do we begin? <laughs> it sounds really trite, but some visual symbols, posters up on the wall, little rainbow flags. You know, the average person might not even see that little rainbow flag in the corner of your window, but if it's somebody who's looking for it, it's like a neon sign these people know. It's your forms. You know, whenever you go and see a new health professional, you always have to fill out a two-page form. Does it just have male and female on it? Does it have other? Does it have gender and a line and you fill it in yourself? Again, those things are like in neon to a person who's looking for a safe environment. Yeah, making titles optional, that's a really crucial one. Obviously, there's a lot of people, not just transgender people, who don't want to use a title. Um, but that's something that in, in my GP when I went there a few months ago and talked to them about the, the records they have for me and tried to ask, okay, so you've got male or female are the only two options. Are you asking about my assigned sex or are you asking about my gender identity? Um, and the, the person I was talking to was like, I don't know, actually.
actually, to be honest. Like he was quite sweet about it. He was like, I'm not really sure what we're asking here. So how would you like us to be asking it? Or what, what would you like us to be saying? And I was like, well, I, my gender identity is not gonna fit into one of those terms. So how about I'll respond to you as if it's about my assigned sex and then we'll make a note, you know, wherever you can make a note saying that my gender identity is non-binary, that I don't identify as male or female and that I would rather be referred to with they, them pronouns. So they, them pronouns are like a gender neutral option and we've learned it as a plural pronoun, right, to refer to a mixed gender group of people. Mm -hmm. um, this class, they, they're going to go and study this thing next semester. But it is in English really the only option that we have for a gender neutral um, appropriate singular pronoun. We don't want to be called it generally. Definitely not. <laughs> and people have tried to create some like her and here and, here and, Z. and yeah. Z, but they just haven't got they haven't traction. Caught on here. I think it's I think it's sensible to use what we already have. In yeah, they language. then make sense to say it's just a it's like a cut and paste exercise in your brain, but it takes a lot of practice. But that's the kind of information that if you don't train your receptionist or you don't. So if if I go in and they're using a title I don't identify with, I mean I've legally changed my name so I can put down my name, but a lot of people don't have the money to change their name legally, so they might have a preferred name. If you're using their legal name and their wrong title and you're calling it out in the reception area, that's a horrifying nightmare. Yeah. You know, people will just get up and leave or they won't respond and you'll never see them again. So if you can adjust forms to be more inclusive, I would love it if places would collect explicitly information about what pronouns people want to use because I think that's more useful than asking male or female because male or female doesn't give you enough data to go on. I understand you might want to make a distinction. You might want to say sex, male, female, intersex, for example, and then you might want to say gender identity and have an open box for people to write their gender identity. Talk about that um, place in America with the mm. name nouns. Yeah, Callan Lord. So the Callan Lord Centre was a place I visited in New York that I thought was doing an amazing um, job of being primary care. So they provide... Um, you know, immediate primary care services to a range of people, often queer and gender diverse people, and also some specialist services. They were quite a wraparound service, so they did a whole lot of different kinds of cancer screenings and sexual health, and they had a pharmacy on site so that if you were prescribed hormones, you could go and get those hormones at that time. Um, and at the Callan Lord Centre, all of their staff wear lanyards with their cards on them, right? And on the lanyards, it has their pronouns. So it might say she, her, pronouns around the thing or it might say he him or it might say they them and that was a way of um, staff signaling that they understand that pronouns are a way of engaging with other people through language that everyone should be okay kind of okay talking about not just oh you're a special gender diverse transgender person what are your special little pronouns actually everyone gets referred to by gendered pronouns all the time so quite handy if that gets normalized um, then I feel like that's a massive signal. I mean, that would be going yeah. beyond the level that I can imagine anyone here going to. But it's that kind of understanding what will make a, a difference socially so that then you can navigate more complexities in private. You know, like I would really love for us to have ways of keeping records that um, don't pop up with the conflicting information to say, so say somebody is a, a trans guy and he really is quite stealth and he really doesn't want the receptionist to know, he really doesn't want all that information on the front page to say assigned female at birth identifies as male or identifies as a man, he just wants 
I use he him pronouns and I identify as a man to be on the front kind of form and then he might be okay with the GP who he's formed a relationship with having much more in-depth information he might go and say actually I do want to get cervical screening or I do want to get but he's only going to do that if he's someone who is quite stealth about it and is not you know wanting to be known as transgender all the time he's only going to do that if he really feels that relationship is safe um, and that's so that's a distinction between what you can do environmentally which can be some visual signals and some understanding of things like titles and the forms that you're using and then there's a level of interpersonal skills that come up when you're dealing directly with a client or a patient or a person. I think one of the other th things too is not to ever have the curiosity value exotic type thing mm -hmm. which which you might encounter. I think that's lessening over time but it's certainly something that people had to grapple with a few decades ago. The, the personal curiosity and fascination overcoming actually professional standards and mm -hmm. what's in the best interest of this person. Why am I asking this question? You know, there's a difference between asking what pronouns would you like me to use about you, which is a really, you know, what are your preferred pronouns? It's a really standard kind of question versus asking, but yeah, but what's between your legs? Mm -hmm. Or what biologically speaking have you got? And again, there might be ways where in a, in a kind of trusting relationship, you might be able to ask, you know, talk about some of your health needs in terms of cancer or in terms of this or that. There are sensitive ways to ask about our biology, yeah. but there are some massively and terrible and, and ways of doing And trans and intersex people will roll with a lot of punches, but that's pretty much the bottom line, eh, is they, they don't ever feel the need to ask that directly, like in a seminar or a workshop or something. And I think there's always a place for a doctor saying to a client or a patient, you tell me, you educate me, I don't really know much about this. If I say something wrong, if I offend you, just be open and honest and, you know, we can work on And don't overreact that. in the way you apologise if they do. But I also think you could say, you educate me, I don't know very much, but man, when you leave, I'm going to go and do heaps of my own research because... I'm committed to being a great GP to you. Because there are places, you know, there's like, we'll send the links through for the resources that we know about. There are some fantastic resources. Um, and so miscellaneous.nz is a website that we've been building that just houses some of those resources that are relevant to health services and kind of rainbow populations. But yeah, it's really possible to do quite a lot of upskilling of yourself once you've seen someone and said, hey, I'm going to do my best. I'll be alongside you for this journey. I'm not an expert. I don't know heaps about it, but I really want to support you the best that I can. That's fantastic. That's a really lovely signal. Mm. But if you just stop there and say, okay, well, I'm not going to think about that again until they come back and say uh, this thing or that thing, and then I'm going to be on the spot trying to work out how to respond to that, it's not as proactive as we would like. Mm. Joe, talk about the um, when... A person needs correcting and the person corrects how it's in making an investment because mm. I think that's a really powerful message. Mm. Yeah, I think that people get very worried about making a mistake as a health professional. They're really kind of worried about offending someone. Obviously, that's a human being kind of worry as well. Um, and they're worried about that harming the relationship with that person or harming the kind of rapport that they're trying to build with that person and that... I, from what I can tell and from what I've seen, if somebody offers you a correction and says, what? No, I didn't say that, actually. No, I identify as a woman. I don't know what you're talking about with that other stuff. 
that's a correction that's a gift and an offering to say, I care about this relationship. I'm invested in you having accurate information and I'm offering you something that's quite vulnerable. Um, take that as a positive sign, I reckon. It's easy in that moment to go, <gasps> panic, terrible feeling, I've done something wrong, I've let them down, you know, I've, uh, they're angry at me or they're disappointed or there's something gone wrong in this relationship. But people remember the moments where you make a mistake and then you recover. So if you can make a mistake, because you're bound to make mistakes, it's inevitable, we all make mistakes, you can't avoid it. I don't even recommend avoiding mistakes. I just think you have to make them and work out how to respond to them. So if you make a mistake and then you correct yourself, you don't make a big deal out of it. You take the information that person is offering, um, whether they've corrected you or whether you've checked yourself and noticed that you did. It's going to be amazing for that person quite likely they're going to have a moment where they really notice you and they notice you're a human being and they notice that you want to relate to them well you haven't done a big you know dramatic self-flagellating moment because that's unpleasant for most people it calls a lot of attention to the situation yeah don't call attention to the situation more than you have to and also don't require that person to support you through your own personal process go to supervision go to therapy we all need mental health support do what you need to do to get that support but in that moment you know roll with your own humanity and and go okay cool sorry about that correct myself she's here to see me because blah 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 you know you it's such a such a gift that people are offering they're not doing it to punish you or make you feel bad they're doing it because they care about the relationship because the flip side is people just have encountered it so often they just shut down and let you go with it and let you dig a deeper hole and and you'll never get accurate information that way let's talk about the physicalities of the practice building so i'm thinking about the practice toilets here's the gents here's the ladies how can we address that yeah hideous I mean, take Joe here, who um, identifies as non-binary. Um, is there a toilet that they could use here in this space? Because you're going to get slitty eye looks, um, yeah, whichever like, toilet you go in. Yeah, it's so much for me. It's about uh, how comfortable do other people feel when I go into their bathroom space. So ideally, we have single stall bathrooms, right, which a lot of practices do have. Mm -hmm. It's just like you would have in your home. It's a toilet. You might have all the receptacles that someone might need um, in that toilet, depending on who they are and what their needs are. But th that's just a bathroom, and you could have a sign on it saying bathroom, restroom, toilet, whatever, um, but it's not a gendered space. And as soon as you get stalls, multiple stalls, that's when people want it to be a gendered you know, a female bathroom or a male bathroom. And that's where I get really stressed out because I don't know going into that space whether people are gonna have a negative or worried response themselves. So I don't personally care which bathroom I use. That's not my personal uh, worry. I mean, there are a lot of transgender people who care very deeply which bathroom they use. So don't take me as an example on that. But personally, I'm just thinking I need to pee. Where can I pee? And then it's other people's response that makes me feel unsafe in a bathroom. So ideally, if you can have single stall rather than multi-stall, that's helpful. If you have multi-stall, it's a tricky thing to know. I mean, the basement is really good. The basement theatre, it has um, a picture on one that has a picture of a urinal and it says mostly standing. And on the other one, it has a picture of a toilet pan and it says mostly sitting mm -hmm. and that's such an invitation to use whatever you like. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, there are a lot of fantastic toilet signage now out there mm. that people are making that's hilarious and wonderful. Yeah. Mm. So that's a great signal if you want to go mm. down that path. Yeah. But yeah, just worth thinking about how stressful bathrooms can be for a lot of people, whether that's stressful because of we, how we ourselves feel or whether it's stressful because other people have been kicked out of both bathrooms. And I'm like, mm. I don't know what you want, what, what do you want me to do? Like, we on the floor. Yeah, in the pot plant. <laughs> <laughs> More pot plants in primary care then. Um, but but humour aside, um, I know that primary care is trying to break down these barriers and Joe, you are wanting to promote the new primary care pathway on transgender health. Tell us a bit more about this valuable resource. Yes, so it's a regional pathway, which I understand if you Google Auckland Regional Health Pathways, it's a pretty standard kind of site and, and situation that GPs will be familiar with, people working in primary care. Um, really excitingly, so that has been put together it's particularly about if a transgender person comes to you and says, I want to transition, there's, there's information about that in particular, because we know that a lot of people who live in rural areas or outside of main centres, the GP is their primary contact. And we want those GPs to feel more supported and able to have conversations and able to call someone else for support and backup, able to prescribe hormones if they feel comfortable to do so. And they know what blood tests to do, they know how to kind of monitor the situation. So you find that Auckland Regional Health Pathway, There's uh, you need a username and a password, you can register for that. Uh, I understand there's also generic username healthcare password connected mm -hmm. that people can use. So if you're a health professional especially, I highly recommend going and having a look at those pathways because it kind of breaks down the different questions that you might ask. It does go into things like pronouns and kind of social stuff as well as medical technical information about if somebody is gonna go on estrogen treatment here's some considerations if someone is going on testosterone you know what are the blood tests you need to do what are yeah what is that kind of really technical information about how do we we need that to be out there in primary care we need that not to be held in small secondary services that are really overwhelmed and in conclusion your take-home messages from this podcast just view every human being as a unique person who's not going to necessarily fit into a box. I think I would say there's a lot of need for self-reflection and self-awareness in this work. So I think people can get carried away um, with saying, oh, I need to know what is a transgender person or what are the health needs that people are going to come to me? Where are the places I can refer people to? Those are not bad questions but they, they are a different angle than thinking, what is the baggage that I bring to this situation? How can I be a more safe and competent person? That's gonna require reflecting on your own experience of sexism or misogyny, or your own experience of being bullied for being the wrong type of boy or the wrong type of girl. Most of us have some experience of not fitting what other people expect our life path to look like you know that's not an exclusively transgender thing that's so common that people can relate to that so try if you're trying to build a relationship with someone uh, doing your own work and I recognize that that's something you, you everyone's probably trying to do all the time but it's so valuable in this area because there are so many stereotypes as we've talked about and so many social norms that will hold you back from actually being able to see the person in front of you because if your own anxiety gets activated about am I going to say the right thing am I going to offend and this is terrible I don't even know what are they then you can't even listen to what that person is saying in front of you so doing your own work enables you to listen 
to what that person is saying and then you can actually move forward with them rather than just getting caught up in your own process. Thank you, Joey and Julie. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a New Zealand primary care practitioner and would like to claim CME points for listening to this interview, fill in the reflection of learning form found on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.